Hi everyone. This episode is a little different than usual. Normally I chat alone about historical figures, but I wanted this show to cover a wide array of topics and people wouldn't usually encounter. Every now and again though, some things are just outside of my reach. But thankfully, that means I can rely on the expertise of others. So today I'll be chatting with Aaron Ross Powell, who is the director and editor of Libertarianism.org at the Cato Institute, about the intersection of libertarianism and Buddhism. So Buddhism is the world's fourth largest religion, but I really don't know a huge amount about Buddhism, and I wouldn't be the only person to say that. Uh, I've only met a handful of Buddhists, and that's probably because in America, only about 1% of people are Buddhists, and nearly half them all live in California. And then where I'm originally from in Ireland, Buddhists make up 0.02% of the population or something like that. So I just haven't really met so many. So now I have you, Aaron. So you're working at the intersection between Buddhism and libertarianism. But whenever I think of Buddhism, I would never think of libertarianism. I'd always think of some sort of kind of hippie Democrat or something like that. Or I would think about Buddhism as in practicing reincarnation or meditation or interesting views about the nature of the self, but not politics. So how did you get into politics and Buddhism? I got into politics through the punk rock scene in Detroit, Michigan in high school and then in college, meeting my now Free Thoughts co-host, Trevor Burris, um, who got me into libertarianism and political philosophy. Um, and then that ended up bringing me to Cato. Buddhism is a, a much more recent thing for me within the last five years, maybe. I, I had always had a general interest in ancient philosophy and as is the case for many people with that interest, what that really meant was ancient Greece. So I decided it was probably better to be less provincial and branch out. And I was a little bit familiar with Buddhism, or at least compared to other Eastern philosophical traditions, I knew something about it. And so decided to start there. And in my reading, I just came to think that Buddhist philosophy had an extraordinary amount of truth to it, that the the diagnosis of the human condition, the solutions, the the ethical and epistemic and metaphysical systems that were were built on top of that seemed to ring quite true and were just incredibly rich as a field of study. Um, and so I have obsessed over it for the last several years and have have come to think that it's it's really unfortunate how little thinkers in the west um and and even you know libertarian free market classical liberal types are are unfamiliar with this tradition because there's a lot in it for for supporting the cause of liberty was schopenhauer one of the first western philosophers to incorporate buddhism it's a little bit unclear the the influence of buddhism on the west uh, there's there's evidence that the Greeks were familiar with Buddhism, um, that they they had met up with Buddhists. The the Greek Pyrrhonists seem to have been heavily influenced by it. There's also some evidence that David Hume was familiar with it, and you can see in in Hume's ideas on the nature of the self or his pushing back on Descartes' cogito things that look awfully Buddhist. And there's there's some evidence that he spent time in a library that had Buddhist texts. So there's been kind of an off and on or, you know, beneath the surface 
line of influence, but it's it's hard to tease all of it out. Certainly, you know, more direct engagement with Buddhist thought is a is a more recent thing. Uh, but I, I also have found that a lot of a lot of Western philosophers who engaged with it tended to misunderstand it or mischaracterize it. So it's it's basic ideas of dukkha, the the kind of nature of suffering, tends to get read incorrectly by a lot of Western thinkers, including I believe Schopenhauer, about just what that means. Um, but but yeah, there has been there has been this engagement, but it still is not a thorough one. Western philosophers tend to be pretty ignorant of it in general. So a lot of people talk about Buddhism kind of like Stoicism or Epicureanism in that it's not really like a religion. You don't need to believe in too much. You don't need to believe in any supernatural deities. It's more like a philosophy for life and a guide to life. So what's the main, what are the main principles of how Buddhists ought to live? And then how does that relate to Buddhism and politics? Sure. So the the core idea, um, the the story is that Siddhartha Gautama, who became known as the Buddha, noticed that there was suffering in life. So not that life is entirely suffering, which is kind of the mischaracterization, but that that we have suffering in our lives, um, and that this this suffering isn't just pain, but also what might be translated as unsatisfactoriness or stress or or just general lack of contentment um and he he decided to try to figure out how to overcome that and his the the core of the theory that he came up with is what's called the four noble truths and so the first noble truth is is dukkha which is this suffering which is basically the truth is that suffering exists that it's present in life the then second noble truth is the origin of this suffering, which he saw as essentially craving that that we we suffer because we become attached we we crave things, we want things, we want things to be permanent when they're not impermanence is a big part of of Buddhist philosophy and and so that kind of grasping at things to make things that are impermanent pretend that they're permanent or to hold on to them or to want them um, is is what drives this this ongoing cycle of kind of dissatisfaction and and makes other forms of suffering worse. And then the third noble truth is that it is possible to overcome this, that it's, we can get to a, a end or an overcoming of this kind of suffering of dukkha. And then the fourth final noble truth is the what's called the Eightfold Path, which is the, the practical steps that we can take to get there. It's kind of the, the prescription. And so this gets analogized a lot, and the Buddha himself used a lot of medical analogies. And so it's the the first noble truth is recognizing what's wrong with the patient the the second is is diagnosing the the cause of the ailment the third is seeing that it is possible to cure the ailment and then the fourth is is the prescription for doing that is you know the the way that we can that we can overcome it and everything about buddhist ideas then flows from those four noble truths and 
and the core of Buddhism as a practical philosophy is found in that that noble eightfold path. So so far, Buddhism sounds more like a personal thing. It's not exactly a very big political project. So what have people said about Buddhism and politics in the past? Are there many people who have interpreted this? Is it a large field? Is it a small field? Early Buddhism didn't have a lot of political theory and and a lot of that was because it was a it was a monastic kind of renunciation philosophy so the you know you the goal of of Buddhist practice certainly at the time of the Buddha was personal enlightenment was the personal overcoming of of this suffering and and so it was very much a self-focused thing you go off and you practice meditation and develop virtues and and correct your kind of take on the world and then you can overcome suffering on your own and and so to the extent that political issues played into this some of the early texts have the buddha giving advice to kings but that advice is usually just of the form of even as a king you should try to live based on buddhist principles and so you should you should make an effort not to cause harm not to be dishonest and and all of the other kind of buddhist virtues should be lived even in the realm of politics but it's it's fairly thin there isn't a comprehensive political theory of say the origins and nature of the state or legitimacy of power and so on as as buddhism grew and became closer in various countries to centers of power it interacted a bit more but again seems to have adapted to to the location so you'll you'll find you know buddhist nationalism um you'll find say in japan during world war 2 the the zen leaders and zen schools pretty heavily embraced the the militarism of of japan but but buddhism has typically been this this personal focused philosophy and and you can get to politics via its ethics in in modern times and in the west we've seen the emergence of what's described as engaged buddhism which is a movement that says look buddhists it's not just about you know ending suffering for yourself it's about ending suffering in the world about putting these you know buddhist compassion into practice and and so therefore buddhists should not disengage the ideal is not the the monk sitting under a tree in the forest it's it's instead someone out in the world trying to improve the state of the world for everyone and this has become a a, a large and very strong movement within buddhist politics the the issue and it's it's part of my project and a lot of my research and writing is that i think there's a there's not a real strong consideration among engaged Buddhism of political theory. Instead, what you see is engaged Buddhists tend to be regular progressives, um, but they're not regular progressives because there is something inherent in Buddhist ideas that points towards progressivism. They're regular progressives because that's kind of what they were bef either before they came to Buddhism or it's what all of the people they know believe. And so there's just a, a jump from, you know, Buddhism tells me I should be compassionate. I think the way that you're compassionate is to be a progressive. Therefore, Buddhism is a progressive in the political sense 
philosophy. And I don't think that's quite true. I think if we go back and we look at the underlying ethics, we look at what the Buddha and and early Buddhist thinkers actually did say when they were talking to kings or talking about political issues, we get something that looks much closer to free markets, individual liberty, libertarianism than we do kind of the large and interventionist welfare state that that a lot of – or even the socialism that, that a lot of engaged Buddhists seem to embrace. So what are some of the main political princ- or principles that apply to politics from Buddhism? Like what would a Buddhist take on something like taxation, for example? Sure. So I think I think the place to start when we're thinking about how we might apply Buddhist ideas to to political questions is the the core ethical idea of Buddhism is is nonviolence, is non-harm. Like Buddhists are not supposed to harm. The the basic kind of action guidance in Buddhism is the five precepts. And these are the things that like Basically, you're, you're expected to live by these. And if you don't live by these, then it makes it really impossible to kind of advance on that eightfold path to advance towards an end of suffering and enlightenment because these things will always be like dragging you down. And, and these precepts include don't kill or don't, don't cause harm. Um, and, and also don't steal, but the, Steal is maybe not the best translation of the original Pali phrasing. A better translation is don't take what has not been given to you freely. So Buddhist monks were, were beggars. They, all that they owned was a robe and a alms bowl, and they would have to wander into the village and beg for their food. And, and so they, the precept says don't take what was not given to you freely. So to begin with, taking those seriously causes problems for a lot of state action because a lot of state action necessarily is about either harming people or threatening them with harm if they don't behave the ways that you want them to, the ways that the laws, the legislation tells them to. And taxation is by definition taking what was not given to you freely. If people voluntarily gave money to the state, we wouldn't need taxation. Taxation is simply saying, you have to give me money, and if you don't, I'm going to threaten you, punish you. And and so the very core of the state, like definitionally, is at the very least in tension with, but probably outright violates these two core Buddhist ethical precepts. There's there's some routing around that in in the idea there's so Buddhism has a lot of traditions and one of them one of the early ones that split off and has become the dominant one is the the Mahayana tradition and in Mahayana they developed the idea of what's called the Bodhisattva who is is this like essentially it's what you're aiming for it's like the ideal kind of state of of virtue and and it's also the idea that if you become enlightened you know you succeed in the buddhist path instead of you know going off and just being by yourself and blissing out you should dedicate yourself to um to advancing the interests of others that 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 compassion could kind of keep you bound to this earth that you shouldn't you know in in buddhist buddhists about 
these cycles of rebirth and and one of the effects of becoming enlightened is ending these cycles of rebirth and the bodhisattva is supposed to refrain from doing that until he or she has has helped other people to become enlightened and one of the the ideas within mahayana is that kind of the bodhisattva as this enlightened being can can bend or break the ethical rules because they have the insight to see that sometimes bending or breaking the ethical rules will create more good than than sticking to them um i'm not convinced that gets around the the prohibitions because certainly most voters and most politicians are not bodhisattvas um so so they don't really get that out and have to stick to this i noticed that buddhism has kind of a similarity to the ancient greek philosophy epicureanism does it have some the epicureans thought that political office was something you shouldn't really bother pursuing because politics won't lead to a good life it's constant anxiety constant craving is buddhism does it have a similar take on political office like buddhists can be politically engaged but holding power is a different kind of matter I think it's going to depend on the tradition. It's going to depend on the culture. There certainly are there are nations that are officially or at the state level Buddhist, such as Thailand. In general, early Buddhism said the the best way to practice was to disengage from the world. You know, so you leave your family, you become a traveling mendicant. Um, and and you focus entirely on on your practice on on meditation and related things in order to progress on the path but there is a there's a strong tradition like if you read the early buddhist texts a, a lot of it is the buddha and his followers talking to lay people who who aren't doing this you know who have families have jobs have responsibilities and and they're not told you know you can't be a buddhist in you know, if unless you shave your head and become a monk, um, so the the rules are kind of the, you know, the strictness of the behavior is a bit lessened for them because they they don't have the luxury of dedicating all of their time to practice and running for office. If you think you know, if that's if that's your job, that's what you need to do. You could certainly do that and be a practicing Buddhist, and there are. There are practicing Buddhists in in political office, certainly, um, but you would still, even in that role, you would still, if you want to be a practicing Buddhist, you would still need to abide by these basic moral principles of of nonviolence and honesty and not stealing and so on, and so that's that's going to run up against. The, the responsibilities of of the politician of the ruler and so on um, and and that that plays out in the the early text so in the the Chakravati Sutta the suttas are the the early record or what we refer to as like they're the main Buddhist texts so a sutta is a, a recording of what the Buddha said they they read kind of like platonic dialogues um, and and in this early one, it's the Buddha's talking to it's called the wheel turning monarch, who's kind of the great king, and is told the great king is expected to follow these things. So the, the great king says, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit sexual misconduct, don't lie, don't drink alcohol. Intoxicants kind of interfere with the ability to practice. 
Um, and this is really interesting. Um, the great king advises the other rulers to maintain the current level of taxation. Um, in other places, it said that taxation should be maybe like 10% of the crops or something. Um, so much, much lower than what we have right now. Um, so yes, I think that definitely you can you don't need to entirely avoid political office. I mean, some traditions are going to say like the only way to really practice is to is to avoid all of that, but but others don't. Um, but at its core, the you need to continue to apply kind of Buddhist ethical precepts, and and those are going to complicate some of the issues in politics. So the ideal Buddhist following the principles given to them would probably be something kind of like anarchists or communitarians, maybe of a sort. I think so. And and in fact, if we look back at at the early Buddhist communities or or at the the community of monks that the the Buddha himself was the head of, um, I believe that political theorist Matthew Moore, who has a very good book on Buddhist political theory, said that these early they're called Sanghas, was the community of of practicing Buddhists. That the early Sanghas were based on what he referred to as a, a form of enlightened anarchism. So there were lots of rules for monks and and we have, you know, thousands of pages of these rules, but the there wasn't there wasn't a coercive angle to it. So the punishment if you say you were a monk and you violated one of the precepts, so you you murdered someone or you stole something, the punishment was was disassociation. The sangha would would essentially ask you to leave. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't like violent retribution, um, and and the Buddha or the the leader of the Sangha was a leader in the sense of being the person that other people looked up to and learned from. But he wasn't a a political leader. Um, there there really wasn't such a thing. Um, and and there's a strong sense in which decision making was kind of by consensus or discussion. And not by dictate. So, so yeah, I think that in an ideal world, um, if if we had all you know perfectly enlightened beings, we wouldn't need the state, and and therefore it would be anarchist. The tension is that we don't live in that world. That there are people who want to do bad things to other people, and and we need a mechanism to prevent that. And so the state might be that mechanism. Um, and so there might be reason to think we kind of need this thing. But but certainly Buddhist ideas would would say that there that it's going to necessarily be doing things that we ought to be worried about. Thanks, Mill, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.